0: This is a CNIB Foundation podcast.
1: You're listening to Blind Wide Open with host Christine Malik. As a blind kid going through the regular school system, I knew about the school for the blind it was a slightly mysterious place where all the students were like me but i'd have to move away from home to go there as an adult i heard stories from people who'd been sent there as small children by parents who were overwhelmed or felt that there were no options for their child in their own communities recently i had a fascinating conversation with dan principal of W. Ross Macdonald School, and I heard about how the school has changed, reinventing itself to become part of a continuum of options for blind and visually impaired students in Ontario. From blind volleyball to dissecting frogs, our conversation covered a lot of ground. The decision parents face of whether to send their child to a residential school is a difficult one. Can you talk about some of the factors that come into play in the choice that parents make?
0: The most important factor is whether it's the wishes of the child and the wishes of the parents that they they go to the school. Is the child ready to be away from home if they're going to be a student who stays in a residence through the week, Monday to Friday? Also, the parents need to understand, you know, are they ready to have their their child go off through the week, Monday to Friday, uh, across the province in some
1: cases? You may not be able to speak to this point, but I wonder about how that decision-making process has changed over the years because what you're describing sounds a little bit different than the experience I've heard from people in their 40s or 50s who may have attended the school and the, the process of making that choice sounds like it happened in a somewhat different way back, back in, their, in their school days. Can you speak at all to that?
0: I can. Uh, the reality going back, I would say beyond... 20 to 30 years ago in particular is that your, your best option for education was in many cases uh, a specialized school and it was felt that you know if you were a, um, an academic student that you know well the phrase was the child should be going to Brantford you know mm-hmm. and, and that happened across the country it was a national school until you know uh, less than 30 years ago it was a, a hard decision for parents to make at that time but it's important to note that you know, throughout the history of of educating students who are blind or partially sighted in this country, it was always a choice. Now, it may not have felt like a choice, but the, there's loads of instances throughout the history of the school, and you can find a lot in our archives about parents that made the decision to send their child and then have the child return back to their home school, or uh, parents who were looking at the school but made the decision not to. We we talk now about a continuum of service, and you know, in Ontario, we're very lucky uh, in that, you know, we have supports in a traditional school board setting. We have weekend programmings offered by Ministry of Education through W. Ross. We have summer programs offered by CNAB and different parent groups and things like that. We have support in school boards by ministry personnel. And then you have a specialized school where you can choose to come to at any point if you qualify throughout your education. It could be in your last year. It could be in your first year.
1: How does that picture look nationally for parents uh, dealing with a a blind or visually impaired child who's coming to school age? It really
0: depends on where you are in this country. Um, If you are in the far north or in deep rural areas or in some provinces, um, there could be very little or not or no supports at all for you. Um, There could be very little understanding um, of needs of that child in in that school or even that school board most educators never come across a child who is either blind or has a profound level of visual impairment Mm -hmm. they have no idea what to do um i get those calls almost on a daily basis some school some area we have this child he's a braille user or you know he can see very little or she can see very little what do we do
1: um what's the current student population
0: uh right now we're in around 180 students um you have to bear in mind that uh, 20 to 40 years ago uh, and, and beyond, we were a national school. So students would come in from all over the country. So the population at that time was over 200. Back in the 60s, I think it was maybe 250 or so.
1: As, as students shift between integration and, and W. Ross, are you hearing things about why integration works or why it doesn't?
0: A lot of people say that in those very early grades, they're, they're typically happy with what's going on in their child's education. Um, the challenge starts to happen as life, as the social life of students speeds up, as the academics, as the school life speeds up in and around the grade five-six range, and probably not coincidentally, increased enrollment in the school it peaks in between grade seven and grade nine, um, and that's typically where our resident students start. Most most of our resident students these days. Um, Nine or 10 is about as, as young as you would typically find them for most, for the most part.
1: Sorry, uh, nine or 10 years of age?
0: Yeah, that would be the youngest. And most of them, there's very few at that age. Most of them tend to be in their early teens. That's when they start coming in for residents.
1: And how does the school curriculum compare with the curriculum in mainstream schools?
0: It is the same curriculum. Uh, we teach the Ontario curriculum. We're mandated to do so, as is any uh, school in Ontario, I guess the, the one difference, of course, is that um, we use basically a, a direct model where you are designing and delivering lessons directly for the needs of your students who are blind or partially sighted. Just like a, a very quick example, I taught uh, geography, grade nine geography for many years at W Ross before I became an administrator. My grade nine geography lessons to a group of browsing students is you know, profound, it would look profoundly different than it would in a traditional school board setting, but the actual concepts are, are the identical. Another example would be I taught history for many years and um, you know World War I, grade 10 history, uh, that, that whole concept of, of trench warfare, it can be really challenging for students who for instance are, are congenitally blind and you're, you're trying to, to bring that experience to life, it's very difficult to do via video obviously, Um, you can describe it, but it often doesn't do it justice. So instead, what we're doing is we're going out and we're actually experiencing it. You know, we would be doing a field trip to a place where there is, um, trenches recreated and there are a few in Southern Ontario and we would be going and we would be doing lessons there at that location to help, you know, deliver that experiential learning is so important for our students. So it's a huge part of what we do at WROS.
1: Can you give me an example of, of how some science experimentation happens there?
0: I'm by no means a science expert. My wife is. Uh, <laughs> she's taught there for many years. First off, you have to pre-teach. Um, you can't assume that somebody with a profound level of visual impairment is going to be able to go in and tear apart a frog and make any sense of it, right? Mm-hmm. So she actually uh, designed and created felt models with Velcro of of frogs with all their parts, and she goes through those with the students. The students actually become uh, experts at tearing these things apart and identifying the pieces and then going back, you know, putting them back together. And then she transfers that to the actual, and that is going in as a, as a guided means. She'll do some hand over hand if necessary, but a lot of times, uh, students, even with, with no functional vision, will be able to go in and I, and take, take apart the frog and go in and identify all the, all the parts of the frog. My, my wife's first year teaching at W Ross, uh, she had a student who, um, had no function or vision and was able to uh, dissect and identify all the parts of the fetal pig.
1: Pretty, pretty impressive. Wow. Oh my gosh. I'm I'm in awe. Um, (laughs) Can you tell me about the access students have to technology?
0: I'll begin by saying as much as they want, particularly in the high school, we let the students guide us in terms of what they're using. Um, What we find they're using, obviously iOS, iPhones, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're using MacBooks, they're using PCs. We always try to make sure that our students know at least two different types of screen readers before they leave the school if they're a screen reader using student. They're using whatever sort of magnification software they can use if they're low vision. When students are heading off to post-secondary, um, we have to be really conscious about what are they going to be using in the college or university setting, and we need to teach that intentionally in their, in their final years. The other side of a course is in the elementary school. And uh, I think the research is starting to show that, you know, screen time, that phrase screen time, we all get a lot of screen time, whether Mm -hmm. it's using a screen reader or or visual means um, may not be good for young kids. Mm -hmm. So while we do uh, typing practice at the younger grades, we don't introduce technology in any sort of increasing way until grade six or seven or something like that. They'll, they'll have access to a computer, but it's pretty limited until those grades. And the best research shows that, you know, if you have a student who's never touched a computer versus a, a, a child who's, you know, started using them at, at age two, um, when you get to age 11, it only takes about a year for both of those students to be at par. Class sizes are only around half a dozen students, right? So yeah, our class size range um, as small as three, um, and in the uh, grade nine to 12, it, they can be as large as uh, 10. The average size is six or seven in high school. So they're quite small classes. One of the big things that I, I'm always curious, I mean, I spend a lot of time obviously talking to our students is is how calm the environment is, particularly for students that come from big high schools. Um, we have a student from Mark Garneau, you know, he, and um, you know, 3,000 students, biggest high school in the country. The difference for that student leaving that environment to one where there's just a couple hundred students pretty profound. Um, uh, plus our school is actually a very large size. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's quite a big, uh, school in terms of its area. So when you walk down the hallway, it's very quiet, very calm, um, very conducive to learning for students who are uh, blind or partially sighted. It's always amazing to me how quickly they settle in for the most part. I mean, there's the rare exception, but, um, they, they come and, and they do, they, the anxiety goes down. And anxiety is such a big issue today. It's a hot topic in education.
1: Mm. And,
0: and to come to an environment where um, your peers are like you in many regards, obviously, they share the same, many of the same challenges. Um, it's, it's a calm environment. Everything is geared towards you specifically and your learning. One of the interesting ways it's been described to me by students is um, I don't have to think about my vision here.
1: How do you prepare kids then who are leaving your school? To, how do you work at preparing them for that transition?
0: We do that in several ways. Um, first and foremost is uh, through the um, the expanded core curriculum, and the expanded core curriculum is uh, nine different areas that I you know I won't go into, but it's those are all very important areas that research shows that the. The greater the exposure to those areas, orientation, mobility, self-advocacy, compensatory studies, uh, independent living skills, the greater the exposure to those, depending on the needs of the student, the more successful they are in school and the better life outcomes. Okay, so that's very important to us that we we provide as much in that area as possible. College and university, socially, it's a little bit different. Um, people are mature. They're... The, the, People are there to learn. It, it's a little bit easier for our students to engage, but depending on the student, you know, if they've spent a number of years at W Ross and they haven't been in a regular system for a time, I often encourage them to go off and do a semester or two at the end of their education back in their uh, the regular school setting. Um, our guidance counselor, our, our, our staff, orientation, mobility staff, our teachers, they actually go out to the colleges and universities with our students, and they explore what it's like. They sit in on lectures. They spend a lot of time working with the accommodation specialists um, at those schools to talk about what is it going to be like? What kind of course load should you be looking at?
1: Tell me about some of the fun aspects of life for students at the school.
0: You know, I I always joke around and uh, say that they, um, you know, the parents are sending them for the academics and the expanded core curriculum. The the kids are coming for the fun aspects. I think the, the most important thing to, to bear in mind is that some of our students that come, uh, sadly, have experienced some type of uh, social exclusion in mm. their, their homeschool setting. Mm-hmm. And so for them to come and to make instant friends, to have a girlfriend, to have a boyfriend, all of those things, um, that's the number one draw, I think, for those kids. Mm-hmm. And what we know about education is when students are happy, they learn better, right? So yeah. that, that's really important. Um they go to dances, they we have a prom, they go to the mall, they go to the movies, they hang out. Um they harass the principal. <laughs> they
1: uh, <laughs> No, surely
0: not. Oh, you know, they do. They do. <laughs> they they try to skip class. Um they do all the things that regular students do, but we we do other things. You know, we've got a pool there. They swim. We have outdoor education trips. You know, they dog sled, they ski, they um they camp, they canoe. Um we have all different types of clubs. You know whether it's catering to the music. We have a wonderful music program that extends throughout the day. Um, you know, it could be could be something small like knitting club. You know, learning how to sew or knit. Kids are interested in that. Um, sports. There's every night. There's some sort of sports activity going on. Whether it's gold ball or soccer. Um, you know, skating or, or anything like that. Um, we just try to do as much as possible. One of the things that you'll hear students say is when they first come. They're exhausted all the time. They're not used to that level of active participation in life, and uh, there's a bit of a transition there where they have to sort of build themselves up to be going, going, going all day long and into the evening. Mm. Um, And then the great thing is, is they get used to that, right? Mm -hmm. They get used to always doing things, and so when life takes them away from W. Ross, whether that's post secondary or back to their home school board, they have they've built up that desire to be busy all the time and to be doing things. And life is better when you're doing things for anybody.
1: You've been listening to Blind Wide Open with host Christine Malik. This was a
0: CNIB Foundation podcast.